Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, you are very welcome to the Tonight Show. Runaway rents rise again, putting pressure on the economy. So any slack in the rental market is completely gone and we're seeing now incredibly low levels of availability, just a handful of properties available to rent. Concern over surveillance cameras at Leinster House as US military jets shoot down three unidentified flying objects amid rising spying tensions with China. We don't uh, fully appreciate and understand exactly what we're seeing. And so we, you know, as we try to do the recovery efforts for some of the things that uh, we've shot down, um, uh, we'll, we'll know more. And later, the case of missing UK woman Nicola Bully and our obsession with true crime stories. Do join our conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight VMTV. First tonight, the death toll from the devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria continues to soar. It's now put at over 35,000. News correspondent Trent Murray sent us this short update tonight, one week after the disaster struck the region with such tragic consequences. Well, as the sun sets on day eight of this operation here in Malatya, many crews are now officially switching gears from rescue mode to recovery mode. At this site, which was a five-storey block of flats, they say after days of using sniffer dogs and thermal imaging cameras, even sound equipment to listen for voices, they are just now highly confident that there is nobody else in there alive. And instead, their focus is on very respectfully trying to retrieve the dead so they can be given a proper burial. We understand that in there right now there is still around five to six bodies that they are trying to access. There are many uh, loved ones and family members here watching all of this take place from the sidewalk anxiously waiting for news while they are wrapping up rescue operations here in other cities they are still going. We have heard today of a 70 year old woman and a six year old boy both miraculously were pulled out after being trapped under all of that crushed concrete for 178 hours. But of course, with each hour that passes, those stories now are just becoming rarer and rarer. A lot of attention also being turned to the humanitarian crisis, which is continuing to unfold here. In cities like this one and many others, people are still living in tents provided by the government's disaster response agency. It's bitterly cold here overnight, about minus nine degrees. People have taken to burning garbage in the street just to try and keep warm. Uh, a lot of attention and a spotlight, I suppose you could say, also being uh, focused on the construction industry. There are allegations that many big building firms may have uh, 
cut corners and, and tried to save money by ignoring building regulations. Um, already we've seen a number of arrests as, and a criminal probe open. One major property developer was caught trying to flee to Montenegro. He was busted at Istanbul Airport, while another one and his wife were caught trying to cross the border into Georgia. President Erdogan's government and prosecutors say that if there is criminal negligence to be found, that those uh, guilty will be held to account. But many of uh, Erdogan's critics have also said that while there are very real questions to answer within the construction industry, that shouldn't deflect from criticism against his government, not just over its response to this disaster, but for years of ignoring warnings about construction firms not following the rules and failing to adhere to building regulations. Trent Murray there reporting for us in Turkey this evening. A chronic shortage of houses is behind the latest rent hike, according to a new update from a property listings website, daft.ie. It says rental costs surged by almost 14% over the final months of last year. And it's leading to new calls for an emergency ban on rent increases. Here's what the housing minister had to say. But fundamentally what we need to do is to be able to be providing more homes uh, and in the rental space too. And we have seen at political level some opposition parties take a clear view that they would, you know, in relation to opposition and objection to new developments across, across the country. That's not something that I want to see. Well, I'm joined on my panel this evening by Fine Gael Senator Barry Ward, Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly, Ireland editor at independent.ie Fiannan Sheehan, and economist Austin Hughes. You are all very welcome to the programme. Uh, Fionan, I'm going to start with you. Look, reports like this, I think they're failing to shock at this point. But the truth of the matter is, if you're out there at the moment and you need to find somewhere to live, you've got two major problems, an availability issue and an affordability issue. And once again, this uh, report today is reiterating that, that it is very much an, a nationwide problem. Um, increases going up by more outside even even outside uh, of Dublin and there's not really a, a pocket of country uh, available at all you, you get anecdotal uh, evidence popping in even last weekend I was hearing of a guy living down in, in rural Tipperary and, and a sister moved got married and moved into a relationship and immediately a few neighbours around going is that house free now John so th this is the kind of thing that's happening around don't the country. mention you have a spare room yeah, or a yeah, spare house literally going. people w watching properties become available in their areas and this is a remote area it's not in a commuter belt or, or, or anything like that and, and that, the report used the phrase chronically starved mm of supply. That's the problem. Chronic supply of shortage. shortage yeah, of but you're, you're, you are in that perfect storm of the population was increasing dramatically anyway over the course uh, of, of the last uh, five to six years. We then had uh, obviously additional pressures uh, in the last uh, 12 months as a result of the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, and you do have the housing shortage still trying to pick up pace again uh, after COVID-19. So that, that's all filtering through. You also have this issue of the ongoing debate of our landlords getting out of the market. Why are they getting out of the market? Is, is it because of uh, policies that are implemented by the government in terms of reducing rents? Is it because they're paying too much taxation? Or is it because property prices have just gone back up and they were reluctant landlords in the first place and now is an opportunity to get out. Kind of simple as that. That, that all combines to uh, that perfect storm that you're having now. All right. Uh, Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin today in response to this calling for this three-year rent increase freeze, a ban on any rent increases. Uh, how would that work? How would that operate in, in practice? Well, I think the 
we are in an emergency, so we now need to see emergency measures coming from the government. So if we look at the 300,000 people in the private rented market, we can see that 100,000 of those should be in social or affordable housing and they're not. They're putting pressure onto the, the rental market. So I think what we need to see is rents are already far too high as it is. There are far too many people who cannot afford to rent. We need to stop that increase in the first instance. We need to put money back in renters' pockets by using a refundable tax credit. It's something that's been long-standing Sinn Féin policy. But we also need to look at increasing the targets and increasing the bills for social and affordable housing because there are people in the private rented sector who are competing in the private rented sector who are eligible and should be accommodated in social or, or affordable housing. And let's not forget as well, there are 11,500 people who are in emergency accommodation. That doesn't count the people in direct provision who have okay. right to, to, to leave, doesn't count people in domestic so, violence shelters, and 3,800 of those are children. So there are families who need okay, the so you're saying that there's a number of measures, now. but one of the measures is this three-year ban on rental increases. How does that work? Well, that would work by uh, an act of the Oireachtas, which would ensure. So already we have the government have moved to ensure to uh, to take put in place the rent pressure zones. So that details the amount of increase. Now we can see from these movements that the rent pressure zones haven't worked. So what we need to see is something more effective to control the prices that will require legislation. But it's in the similar vein to the rent pressure zones. But the rent pressure zones haven't worked. I mean, if you can look that the rent well, there's are saying tenants in situ that there's been a 3.8% increase. So that would suggest they have actually worked. No, not necessarily, because they're supposed to apply when, uh, when a person moves out. It's only to new tenancies that they don't apply, and there aren't that many new tenancies. So actually, if you are looking to rent in Dublin, or if you are looking to rent anywhere else across the state, you are now seeing rent increasing to the point where it is way beyond okay. uh, most people to be able to So afford. let's say we have a brand new apartment block, right? We have 100 apartments. How do you set the rent for those? The market sets the rent, the, the landlord sets the rent and what you do then is you ensure, so you take what would be the, the average and you ensure, the same as with the rent pressure zones, it is related to each, uh, to each area, but you ensure then that they don't increase above that rate. So the landlord could still come in with new properties and set the rents at whatever they wanted. But there has to be, the same as with the rent pressure zones, there has to be a, a, a link to that not increasing and ensuring that you give people that level of certainty. But I think we need to look at this more holistically because we also need to see a real improvement and a real ramping up of building for social and affordable homes for okay. people and for families because we do need to see people coming out of emergency accommodation and going into homes. Does this work? Well, the Very first hard. thing is that we're talking about social and affordable housing. There were, we have are now building more social housing per annum than at any point in the history of the state. So that has been ramped up. And the answer to this is first and foremost supply, dealing with that that pinch point. Okay, so let's just go back yeah. to this uh, rental increase freeze because mm -hmm. I just want to focus on that because I think everybody knows we need yeah. to increase well, supply. The, the question is not how it can be done. It's very clear how it can be done. It's what are the unforeseen consequences. So uh, Fiona mentioned earlier the fact that landlords are getting out of the out of the market. That's one of the reasons why that's happening. And so, for example, at the same time that interest rates are increasing and therefore there is greater pressure on property owners who have mortgages, for example, it creates a real problem for somebody who can't pay the mortgage with the rental income from a particular apartment. So there are unforeseen consequences with that as well. So it's all very well to say we need to freeze rents, nobody can ever increase rent. But there, there is a consequence to that as well. So do you and think rent... this would ultimately dampen supply? 
That, that is, is that absolutely a concern, yes. And it, it, you'll have a situation where there'll be apartments that, that, that people will, will look to move on or will not be able to rent or whatever it might be. But the point, the point that I'm making really is that it's all very well to say, let's stop all, all rents increasing. But the reality is that that will have unforeseen consequences that will actually make it more difficult for renters. And I say that as a renter. Um, it'll be more difficult if, if Sinn Féin policies get in, get in. What we need to do is ramp up supply, which is what is exactly the government is what uh, is doing. Louise, this will actually have the opposite effect. It's going to make it more difficult for renters. It would have the opposite effect in terms of trying to encourage supply. I think uh, what we're seeing is that the effect of the government not ramping up, saying they're ramping up and then not ramping up supply. Because, I mean, at the back of this, supply is absolutely the key. And that's not happening. And if it was happening, okay, but let's just we, go back. Would, Sorry, we would I'm, see reduced pressure. I don't, I don't want to talk about mm -hmm. just supply because everybody's, I think, heard that they're blue in the face. I want to talk about this rental increase ban. So in response to what Barry Ward said, he said it won't have the effect that Sinn Féin says it will. It will actually dampen supply. I don't believe it will. I think there is a demand. There is clearly a demand for rental properties. What we also need to see, though, are people who shouldn't necessarily be renting in the private rented sector being given the opportunity to exit into social and affordable homes. And I think that's, that is one thing that will take huge pressure off the rental market. Is there not a real difficulty here? Because we've heard time and time again about construction, inflation, about apartments that they are not financially viable, that there's 50,000 planning permissions sitting here in Dublin and they haven't been started. Surely at this time, bringing in something like a rent freeze for three years would do what Barry said. You know, it makes that even more unviable, more unattractive for investors, for builders. But are, and are you suggesting then that rents should be allowed simply run out of control but and I'm, beyond I'm just saying, do you accept people? those That's unforeseen what consequences? No, I, I, what I'm saying is we need to ensure that we take urgent action. Now, there is an emergency. There is not an emergency response okay. from the government, and that is very regrettable. But the lack of an emergency response has made and compounded and made the okay. situation worse. Austin, do you think this would work? Um, I think you can't be definitive about it. It depends on other circumstances. I would worry that it won't work. I would worry that it would negatively affect supply. I understand the sort of the desire to do something today, but the reality is what can be best done today is to take measures and really ramp up the longer term issue. And I know you've said it, but sure. supply is the element there. And it is linking it into these other aspects of the economy. You know, it is, we have a very strong economy that is going to put natural some increase in rents. We have uh, at the moment pressure in terms of home buying, people taking longer to save, all those issues. We have a post-COVID economy where people, again, are moving around, trying to find their uncertainty. So there are all these moving parts, which is why I'm saying you can't definitively say it will or it won't uh, change. But it, there is a significant risk that it will adversely affect supply. I think the critical element instead has to be to really, really ramp up the measures in terms of infrastructure spend very significantly and that will also help even in the the obscure you know one horse towns the sort of villages around the country uh, that makes it viable to build and to live in these areas how many houses austin hughes do we need to build do you think before we're going to get to a point in this country where we have a normal rental market uh, we put well, a figure on that I, I, I don't think there's a mechanical figure remember you know 
10 years ago, economists were saying, we don't need to build another house for 10 years. You know, so, you know, being definitive about this, but we probably do need, we're falling short by about 20,000 houses a year for the next four or five years, at very least. We have a shortfall that has built up over the last while. So in that regard, we're talking at least 100,000. I think Ronan Lyons mentioned a figure that in a healthy economy, you would probably have maybe another 200,000 houses to rent. And you do need to think about that. We need to be much more imaginative about this and recognize, as I say, that things are going to remain very difficult in the short term, but you do need to really significantly ramp up and the government has the capacity to do that. All right, uh, Fiona, um, do figures like this and reports like this put extra pressure on the government at this time to extend the eviction ban? Oh, yeah, I mean, the, particularly the, the timing of it, um, the evic eviction ban is coming back into play. So, you know, Barry can give a view of, of what, what government's view of that is at the moment. It certainly adds to the pressure. I mean, the, the other factor in the equation here, whether it's government policy or opposition policy, is that there is always the, the risk uh, of breaching constitutional property rights, whereby a landlord goes down the route and finally takes a, a comprehensive um, case uh, in, in the courts and, and actually over, overturns it. So government will argue, look, you need to strike a balance here, we can only go so far. However, that argument has been put out now repeatedly about the rent pressure zones, you can only go so far. The eviction ban, you can only go so far, but yet it's, we've got this far. The same argument we put forward about Louise's view about a, a, a complete rent freeze for, for three years. We haven't really seen that. We saw it back in the 1980s. Paddy Madigan, the Josepha Madigan, the junior minister's father, took a successful uh, case on, on rent controls at that time, completely overhauled all the market. So th there is always that risk of a legal challenge putting the kibosh in all these, all these restrictions. Uh, Barry Ward, would you support extending the eviction ban at this point? Again, the difficulty is there are unforeseen consequences that come with that. I think particularly for Irish people, eviction is a, a very emotive word. Mm -hmm. So banning eviction sounds good. But a lot of the, the landlords, the, particularly the private landlords in the market, are, as Fiona said, accidental landlords. They don't want to be landlords. They got stuck with a house and they may be in negative equity still or they might have difficulty paying that mortgage. And if you have a situation where they cannot evict somebody, for example, to or, or end a tenancy, it would be a better way of putting it, to sell that house or to, to move on or whatever it might be, it makes it incredibly difficult for them. And, and you the, think this is the wider feeling within Fine Gael at this point? Well, the danger is that you have all of these ordinary people who didn't intend to be landlords and now find themselves in a position and they get the kibosh on them because of a policy that's well-meaning but has unintended consequences. All right, Louise, I just want to ask you uh, quickly because there will be a lot of speculation of the next couple of days about the supports that the government are either going to extend or cut. If you were in government, uh, what would be cut at this point? I don't understand. In relation to... In, re in relation to the cuts uh, on excise around petrol and diesel, in relation to the cut in VAT for the hospitality industry, well, all of the supports that yeah. have been attributed well, the last I would couple like of months to, see, to help people through I'd, the cost I'd like of to see the government's, Yeah, I'd like to see the government's report and the information that they have in relation to VAT because they, I know that they've done an extensive study and I think that should be published. So I think we need to see that in advance of being able to, to, to take a definitive decision. But I do think the government have scope now to continue their measures. They keep saying there's not going to be a cliff edge. But do you, do you but accept that they can't continue all the measures? 
But I think many of the measures can be continued. And I think we also need to look at, and I mean, we'll be debating the Sinn Féin motion this week on cost of, on cost of living interventions. Mm -hmm. The cost of living crisis hasn't gone away, you know. And I mean, Barry can talk about... Yes, the, and, the, but the, I'm just the, trying the, to get a sense landlords. of what can be cut and what should remain in Sinn Féin's eyes. Okay, so the government have a surplus, so therefore they are in a position to maintain supports uh, okay. for workers and for families and for businesses. And they also need to look, though, so you look so at... So you're the, not going to give me specifics? If you look at the TBESS scheme, that scheme okay. had uh, 1.2 billion behind we, it, but what it didn't Louise have, it, it has a very, very uh, when you low asked drawdown. The, when you asked the question, Kira, Louise didn't even understand it because Sinn Féin never contemplates the tough decisions that have to be made. We're in the fortunate position that the economy is one of the fastest growing in Europe and is projected to be so this year. That didn't happen by accident. It happened because of responsible right. management by people like Pascal Donoghue and not the kind of giveaway economics that we've seen from Sinn Féin. All right, it's but not, it's not a giveaway to support families, and that's, Barry. But the, the government you know, is mean, supporting I, families, I, I understand But you want to tell everybody they so can just, have everything without any consequences. And that, that's not at all the case. But, you know, you, you come in here to, to, to plead for leniency for small landlords, you know, and you say, well, what about the, what about the landlord? Well, what about the family that's about to be evicted? You know, you've got to balance yeah. that all but of the time. Those families are and there are families by the government in there a high range of who were absolutely terrified that the Fiona, winter eviction ban, okay, when it runs uh, out, that they will find themselves homeless. Very, very briefly, that's a fact. do you have any sense, Fiona, what's on the table at this point? Yeah, so uh, one does get the sense that there's a, a, a realisation there that you can't just hit the cliff edge and that some supports are going to have to remain in place, particularly around the energy credits. I think uh, that has been a massive shock to, to the system, both to the public and the political system. The absolute uh, size of, of, I don't even think last October people would have anticipated how much energy bills would have gone up by in, in mm, the new year. Colossal there. And if, the, if that hits again in another couple of months, I can see that being continued, yeah. All right, OK, look, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, uh, apologies and get back to you, Austin. We'll uh, have you in again very soon. Um, my thanks to the panel. Um, most of them are staying with me. But next, concerns over Chinese-made surveillance cameras at Leinster House. Do stay with us. You're very welcome back. My panel is still with me, Barry Ward, Louise O'Reilly and Fiona Sheehan. And I'm also joined by Sunday Times crime and security correspondent John Mooney. You're very welcome to the programme. Now, there's been calls for a review of CCTV cameras at Leinster House over concerns that the Chinese-made cameras could represent a security threat. But the company behind their installation says the suggestion is categorically false. John, I'm going to come to you first. Who is this company and why are there security concerns over these cameras? So Hikvision is probably one of the world's leaders in surveillance and CCTV systems and they've also developed artificial intelligence very closely aligned to the Chinese state and they've indeed uh, been involved in contracts for the provision of artificial intelligence surveillance systems in the Uyghur region of China. So that, that they've turned that region, or the Chinese state, should I say, have turned that region into a near dystopian type of place for uh, Uyghur Muslims to live. And we've all, uh, we're aware, aware of the mass imprisonment and incarceration of people from that region, region on various grounds. So that's Hick vision. Um, I think it's really important to, to clarify that it's very important that people don't conflate two different issues. So there is a big movement against uh, Hick Vision because of their involvement mm. in that uh, um, surveillance capability in Western China and, and that, the Uyghur region. 
then you have their alignment to the Chinese Communist Party. So China at the moment has this huge surveillance capacity, really with tentacles across the world. Most major powers do. Um, you know, the current regime in China or Beijing, they are, uh, you know, authoritarian, but they're also technocrats. They believe in um, the harvesting of mass data, etc., etc. So under a 2017 law in China, all companies that are, state, uh, that are closely aligned with the state and indeed formed in China must uh, cooperate with state uh, intelligence activities. Now, the company will, of course, say they don't do that um, and they don't hold data uh, on European customers, etc. And indeed, a company would argue that we provide cameras. They're not necessarily involved in using our systems. For, they're more, I think, technical equipment and they will say that so any cameras that are installed in politically sensitive locations or part or form part of critical infrastructure um, in any European Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. country uh, they would argue is safe however many european countries now are removing them they see it as um a vulnerability within their um their own and it's beyond europe services. too isn't it absolutely yeah it's in many different countries and um, they're removing these cameras and do any of these countries i know i think i read the us the uk are looking into this australia and um, the Italian authorities, I think, said that they'd carried out an investigation and found, you know, evidence that the data was being used for a more sinister purpose. Um, but the company themselves say that it is categorically false to represent TechVision as a threat to national security. No respected technical institution or assessment has come to this conclusion. So I'm wondering, apart from the Italian authorities, has there been any evidence that the cameras are being used for a kind of an ulterior purpose? Okay, so the best way, this is a very complicated question, a complicated issue, and it's going to have a complicated response. With surveillance and intelligence services, there's no such a thing as a closed door to them, and that's be it the guards, J2, or MI5, or whoever it is. They, they find and develop ways to get into systems if they have to for their own reasons. 
I think the concern about Hikvision is, is that there could be problems with those cameras in terms of the code maybe used on them, there could be exploits in them that at some point or other could be utilised for whatever reason okay. possible. But I do think it's, it's also really important to point out that Chinese services behave like any other services, like Russians and American services, whoever, and they tend not, you know, spying isn't conducted with CCTV cameras hidden in public buildings. It, it, they can form a picture of what's happening inside them, but there's human intelligence, there's other types of technical okay. intelligence and cyber intelligence. So it, the concerns are justified, but I think it's important to understand that that shouldn't be really amplified either. Okay, so Louise, should they be removed, these cameras, do you think? Well, I think we need to get security advice in the first instance. Um, and I think we also need to hear from the OPW as to what checks they would have carried out. So obviously the OPW are responsible for uh, the maintenance of the infrastructure in Leinster House. Um, so I, I would like to hear from the OPW what advice they had, what you know, uh, what security and risk assessments they under uh, they, they engaged in in advance of purchasing this equipment. So I think that would be really, really important. You know, nobody wants to jump unnecessarily to any conclusions, but we can't ignore the fact that these cameras were in use in the European Parliament and they've now been removed. So we do need to look at it. We need to get, I think, in the very short term, we need to get some security advice uh, in relation to the cameras that are there at present. And I don't think that's, that should take too long uh, for the authorities in Leinster House to conduct that. OK, uh, Catherine Murphy from the Social Democrats, um, I think she's had a quote in your article, John Mooney, um, where she said, we're always behind the curve here in Ireland when it comes to issues like this, national security issues. Would you agree? Is that not a fair I, point? I wouldn't agree with that. This is an issue I've kind of been aware of. I'm the co-chair of an organisation called the Interparliamentary Alliance on China. So I'm very much aware of what China does. And it's not a surprise because the Chinese Communist Party doesn't really hide its light under a bushel mm. when it comes to this kind of thing. And it's not a surprise either the company says it's categorically false. Of course it'll say that. But it but seems this... that only now, since we've had these articles published in the national press, that the OPW have said they're doing the security you, even though you say you've been aware of these yeah. issues? I, I think, no, I think there have been issues with this for a long time. And it's not just Hikvision, it's other Chinese uh, security manufacturers. We've had it in the context of the EU 5G uh, security toolbox as well, in relation to the rollout of 5G, 5G services across Europe. We have to be extremely careful. But I would say from the get-go, even the activities of, of Hikvision in Xinjiang should be a red flag. Any company involved in the suppression of the Uyghur uh, people in Xinjiang so are you concerned should be that this ex hasn't excluded. This hasn't come up, this review hasn't come up before now, no. given the fact, as Louise said, the European Parliament did remove these, yeah. and I think that was and, over and, the and English I issue. see, like, mm. the Cahir look of the channel, Jerry Buttermer has said today that there should be the review, and that will come. But I think John makes a good point in that the, the, the fact that there are Chinese cameras, if I can put it in those terms, inside Leinster House is not in and of itself a problem. The problem is that we don't know what else they can do. We, the problem is we don't know what other systems they're contributing to, what other intelligence gathering that they're contributing to. And I feel very strongly that we should, I, I don't think we're behind the, 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 the curve on security, but we should be very, very careful about this and we should be looking at it with a very strict uh, review of, of the security elements of that. All right, well, speaking of security, I want to go to the United States now because US military jets shot down three unidentified flying objects at the weekend over the United States and Canada. It comes a week after a suspected Chinese spy balloon was also downed. I'm joined from the United States for the very latest on this by US correspondent Kate Fisher. Kate, you're very welcome uh, to the programme. In terms of the three UFOs shot down over the weekend, do we have any idea what they were or who was responsible for them? 
This is definitely a situation of where we have way more questions than answers. Journalists have been hounding the Biden administration all day, all weekend, to try to get more information. Today, at a press conference at the White House, we were told that they don't know who owns them, they don't know what they were doing there, and they don't know what was on board. They decided to shoot them down, they say, because they were in civilian airspace, air trafficking could have posed a threat to aircraft. and also also, because of this suspected Chinese spy balloon that was shot down uh, earlier, they have extended their radar. Their radars are now more sensitive, so they are finding more UFOs. But these three that you're talking about shot down over three days over the weekend, they've all landed in areas that are very difficult to access. So now we don't know any more because uh, search teams can't actually get to them to find out what it was in the sky that they've shot down. Uh, Chinese media reacted quite angrily to this. Uh, the foreign ministry saying the US had totally overreacted and they claimed actually the US has employed the exact same tactics in China. Is there some truth to this? The White House were categorical in their denial of this. Uh, John Kirby, who is a uh, national security coordinator spokesperson, said that there was absolutely no truth in that. Uh, he said that this was an example of the Chinese trying to do damage control and that there was uh, no, no situation where the US had been using these balloons over mainland China. The White House also made it clear that this was definitely not aliens or extraterrestrial activity. Well, that is reassuring. All right, we'll leave it there. Thanks, uh, Kate Fisher. I can't imagine, Fionnun, um, that this is doing much for bilateral relations between the US and China. No, you'd be kind of surprised if the Americans aren't spying that closely on the Chinese, to be fair. Um, maybe they're telling us then that their, their satellites are that bit more advanced and they can actually see through clouds. That's quite remarkable development technology. We, it, it's of concern as well in, in this country, following up on the previous conversation. We, we often underestimate how strategically important we are uh, as a country, uh, member of the EU, close ally to the United Kingdom on, on very many fronts, including on a, a security front with a shared border, uh, and also the, 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 the capital uh, for so many of the major technology and pharmaceutical and biotech com we, countries around the world. Do we also underestimate how vulnerable we are? Yeah, well, we can't. We seem to struggle with even a, a drone flying in our own Louise's constituency, and where our major, most major piece of infrastructure can be shut down uh, for a few hours because of that. So, yeah, our, our capability to deal with these issues again, it has always been we've farmed that out. We have we have relied upon our neighbours on either side uh, to to protect us in this regard. Okay, uh, back to the United States for a moment, John. Um, there's obviously spy satellites. What's the difference between these spy satellites and balloons? Why are they shooting down these particular objects? Well, I think the, the general thinking on this is that this is power projection by Beijing, but it's also power projection by uh, America. So you've got this growing tension between those two um, superpowers for a long time. And um, you, China has become fiercely nationalist in the past, uh, since 2008, when she came to the ascent. And everything that most scholars and most people that have looked at, experts in international relations, thought would happen hasn't happened. So he's consolidated his power. He's a man that, you know, I've heard various people describe him as having iron in his blood. He's a street fighter. He's committed 
uh, ideologists to communism, etc. So, and he, they are determined, and they've said this, they're to become the main power in Asia and have in, the intentions of, I suppose, correcting the rights that they've seen, this, this issue of the rise of the Middle Kingdom so again. in terms show of, of power. Yeah, that they want to um, become this big, big power and possibly the biggest power in the world. So I think this is part of that. But a lot of people are very concerned about this because... Uh, China has huge nuclear weapon arsenal at the moment. Its army, I think, is bigger than the Americans at the moment. And they're very much asserting themselves and determined to do so in All lots right. of different ways. All right, uh, we have to leave it there. Fascinating uh, discussion. My thanks to Barry, Louise and Fiona. John is staying with me. Next, why we are fascinated with true crime stories. Do stay with us. You're very welcome back. The police in the UK are continuing their search for missing woman Nicola Bully. The case has captivated public and media attention. Well, earlier, journalist Andrew Brady gave me an update on this high-profile investigation. Well, Kira, this goes back to January 27th, and it was a typical morning for Nicola Bully, 45-year-old mother of two. She's a mortgage advisor, and she dropped her two little girls off to school, age nine and six, and on her way to walk the dog, she sent an email to her boss and then she logged into a work call on Teams. So she was using her mobile phone. She logged in remotely and she'd walked her dog across that stretch along by the riverbank, the River Wire in Lancashire, hundreds of times. So it's an area she knows really, really well. What happened next? She seems to have just vanished into thin air. At half past nine, her mobile phone was found on a park bench by the river logged in still remotely to the work team's call. Uh, the dog and the leash were found as well. No sign of Nicola Bully. So we're now at day 18. A huge police search has been underway for weeks now, and it would appear that they are no closer to solving the mystery of where Nicola Bully has gone. And the search to date has really focused on that river that she was walking alongside but a specialist team who were brought in to search that river have dismissed the theory that she fell into the river. And her own family seem to believe that there's a more sinister element at play here. So the police came out very, very quickly and made it clear that they felt there was no criminality involved. This was on day one, day two of the investigation. They felt that Nicola had perhaps fallen into the river. Maybe the dog's ball had gone in or she'd gone in after it. Um, that was the theory to begin with. Now, they made that very public very quickly, and they're getting a lot of criticism for it now for apparently ruling out criminality so quickly. Then the family pointed out that Nicola is a very strong swimmer, and the water there is 15 foot deep. Her family said that she would have had no problem getting out of that river. So they turned to a man called Peter Falding, who is a police forensic underwater search expert. He brought in all the latest kit, technology and equipment, an underwater drone, a sonar device. And he said that if she was in the water, he would find her within three days. Well, he searched and he searched and he found no trace of Nicola Bully anywhere in the water. And the police divers have been in the water as well. So the search is expanding. They've been out at sea now, searching a stretch of, of the coast just off Fleetwood in Morecambe Bay. It's the Irish Sea. And the police investigation continuing, huge resources, but they've been hampered in recent days by the behaviour of some members of the public, would you believe? 
Yes, because this has generated huge, huge public interest. It has fueled a significant amount of online speculation and conspiracy theories as to what happened to her. But a lot of individuals have actually come to the village to carry out their own searches or taking matters into their own hands. Tell me about that and, and the impact that that's having on this police investigation. So several strands, really, Kira. I think to begin with, it was friends of Nicola Bully who just wanted to help the family and scoured the area, and, and good, well-meaning people turned up initially. Then, as it got more publicity in the news and online, people started turning up, for want of a better expression, for a gawk, and it became a bit of a tourist attraction, a really morbid tourist attraction, people taking selfies near the bench, for example. And then, in recent days, so-called influencers from social media have started turning up making content for TikTok, uh, YouTube, Instagram, you name it, amateur detectives in inverted commas, turning up for likes, for clicks, for content, so much so that in the last few days, the police have actually had to issue a dispersal order. So they have been complicating things. And yes, a lot of theories online, a lot of amateur detective work going on with no basis in fact whatsoever. But the fact remains, Nicola Bully is still missing as we push towards three weeks now of her disappearance. And if police have any leads in the background, if they have any information, they're not sharing it. They may well know more than we know. Um, but right now, it appears that she has vanished into thin air. All right, Andrew Brady, uh, thanks for that update. Sunday Times crime correspondent John Mooney is still here and I'm also joined by cyber psychologist Dr Nicola Fox-Hamilton. Uh, you're very welcome to the programme, Nicola. Um, end of there talking about the fact that this dispersal order has had to be introduced because there were so many members of the public from right around England coming trying to solve the case themselves. Uh, why do some cases really capture the public imagination and others don't? Well, I, th I think this is such a mystery and it's so hard to figure out what's going on. So that encourages people. They want to solve the puzzle of it. They want justice for the person who's disappeared. Um, and so what happens is online, you get people coming together around a common topic that they have, um, that they're trying to, they're finding purpose together. They've got something in common and they form a community. They feel like they belong to that community. They find acceptance there, belonging there. Um, and that's quite a strong thing that really connects people and brings them together. Um, and then within that, you've got a sharing of a huge amount of information. Um, like people are processing an enormous amount of information. And because of that, you get a huge amount of sharing of misinformation. Social media doesn't encourage us to process information at a deeper level, to think slowly about it or rationally about it. It helps us or encourages us to process it more in an automatic way, more intuitive way. And that makes us much more prone to errors and cognitive biases. So you see things like, you know, uncertain facts or hearsay repeated continuously until they become facts within the community that go unchallenged and that causes a lot of problems. When we talk about these, you know, armchair detectives, I think it's a phrase being used, are they predominantly women? Isn't, is that the evidence? There's certainly more women, um, particularly around anything to do with true crime. And there's some evidence from research that that is to do with our instinct for survival, to understand why crimes happen, 
why criminals behave the way they do so that you might spot red flags yourself if you come across somebody. As and a woman, how... you feel you're more likely to be a victim of a crime. Yeah, exactly. Um, and how to survive something if it does happen. You know, people look at examples where someone's kidnapped and they escape and they think, well, that's how she escaped. Maybe I'll need to use that in future. Um, and so that's one of, the women, one of the reasons why women are so involved in cases like this. Uh, John, I'm wondering um, what impact it has when you have all of these conspiracy theories online uh, on the police investigation, if you sort of undermine public confidence in an investigation like that, as is happening in the UK with the investigation into Nicola Bully? It depends on the police officers involved. So investigations of this type follow a certain route. Not all of that will be in the public domain. So there's activities of absolutely no doubt are going on in the background to this where people are being examined, their phone, data, um, very deep dives into lots of different issues. Uh, and that's just a precautionary measure in many ways. There'll be people who may have past history, violent histories, etc., who may be known to the police will be, where were they? Could they have been in that area? You know, uh, have they the potential to take someone? And this goes on in any of these investigations. This isn't unique to this. So... It, Usually with a police inquiry, we'll remain focused in that. I think where um, the British police in particular can be very um, uh, uh, vulnerable to outside uh, commentary and that kind of thing. And I think it becomes even more difficult when you have uh, a plethora of uh, so-called experts given all sorts of uh, advice and theories on this thing. Um, the truth of the matter is, is that that inquiry team will probably have be following certain lines of inquiry that they're keeping very much to themselves. So, so this idea that the police have sort of stuck rigidly to this one hypothesis that um, Nicola Bully fell into the river, you say that's possibly not true. That could be a strategy by the, by the police. It's not, I'm not saying it's possibly not true. I'm telling you it's not okay. true. Police uh, investigations follow certain processes. They're the same the world over. Police forces behave and detectives are trained in a particular way. Um, they're suspicious, pesky characters by their nature who don't take anything at face value. And they usually operate investigations of this uh, type where they'll trace and eliminate and identify someone that may be of interest to them while searching for um, uh, this woman to see what's happened to her. But I mean, most of them are capable of keeping an open mind. There has, unfortunately, of course, in the past been cases where people haven't and they focus in on a suspect and that is really, really dangerous. But, but there are usually safeguards around that that stop that from happening. Has the rise in popularity, Nicola, of you know, true crime podcasts and true crime TV series, has it had an influence on this? It definitely has. Um, you know, those kind of things are infotainment. Um, and now what you've got is participatory infotainment where people can actually take part in the investigations themselves. So I think things like serial and making a murderer just caused an absolute explosion in people wanting to take part and being interested in this. So going from absorbing the entertainment to being part of the entertainment themselves. Um, and, you know, I think when you've got groups of people who are maybe anxious or feel powerless or they're marginalized groups um, who are experiencing a feeling that the hierarchy or the power in, in the country is against them. So, for example, women in the UK at the moment, the police force has a problem with women and how they've investigated within their own ranks and high-profile cases. 
And so there's a degree of mistrust amongst mm. women. And so there's a reaction to that, I think, amongst women. And now they're trying to take control of the situation in a way by getting involved in the investigation. And that's part of why people get involved in this. And it's part of where the conspiracy theories develop from as well. Um, in a situation that's very uncertain, you're trying to find meaning and, and certainty in it. And so alternative narratives help give back some control to people who are creating them. Um, is there any evidence that any of those sort of conspiracy theories online can be helpful to an investigation? Conspiracy theories, not really, no. Um, there's some examples of groups, but they tend to be groups that are set up more long-term that use people's skills. For example, in the US, there's groups that look at um, bodies that were found mm. who mm. they can't be identified and they try to identify coroner's reports or missing persons reports that might match those bodies so that they can identify them. But that's a long-term project. This is more like a frenzy online, a digital frenzy. It's short term. It'll be forgotten about by a lot of people quite quickly. But at the moment, it's very consuming for a lot of people. Um, isn't there a real balancing act here, uh, John, for the police in the UK? Or indeed, uh, you know, if there's cases um, for the Guardi here in Ireland, because you're trying to sort of control the public, you're trying to keep the public away, but also you need their engagement. You, you need their support and their help. Well... Police investigations tend to look for witnesses to come forward. It, it's relatively uh, um, sort of well-conducted in this country. I mean, mistakes sometimes happen, but by and large, um, the communications from uh, Garda headquarters tends to be on the mark and they tend to be accurate and very helpful about that. I haven't seen any, can't think of any major catastrophes um, in, in recent years anyway. So... It, I suppose with, with all of this stuff, this is a, a, a kind of a, a symptom of modern society. Um, we, we've seen cases in Ireland where um, there's been a lot of public debate on social media. Much of it is really ill-informed and very dangerous. Um, and very hurtful it, to family a lot of the time. And I can tell you, you know, there's been um, uh, material posted online that if it was a newspaper, we'd be in Igort mm. forever with it. But it, it doesn't happen that much. There's been a couple of high-profile cases. Mm -hmm. I think what's, what I find really fascinating about this is that the people engage in this, they never seem to know that they don't have the full story. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there, but my thanks uh, to both my guests this evening and to you at home for watching. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms, and you can find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight at VMTV. But from all the day team here, good night and do take care.